0: Hello, I'm Mark Petruzzi, host of Selling the Cloud podcast. And I'm Ray Reich, your co-host of the show. We talk to a wide
1: variety of cloud and SaaS industry thought leaders and revenue generation experts.
0: Who share their unique insight into what is required to build and grow a great business in the cloud.
1: Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Sign the Cloud Podcast. I'm your host, Ray Reich, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Petruzzi. Hey, Mark. Hey, Ray. Today, we are very fortunate to be joined by William Tyree, who's the Chief Marketing Officer at Revenue.io. Today, we'll be covering three main areas with William. First, the decision to rebrand a B2B cloud company. Second, the challenges to move from the rebranding strategy to the execution, and third, the measurements to measure the return on a rebranding initiative. William, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Selling to Cloud podcast.
2: Well, thanks. I'm honored to be here. I have been in B2B marketing for about 20 years. I started my career actually as a writer and a professor. And, you know, I had one of those committees that they give you when you're in academia and, you know, got stuck essentially editing a a linguistics journal. And it was through that digital transformation of that, that I fell in love with tech and eventually found my journey into MarTech and landed here. So I'm still a writer at heart, very much. You know, I think content marketing is core for me, but absolutely, you know, have loved, you know, meeting folks like you and I love, especially how prevalent AI has become to everything that we all do in the RevOps movement itself. That's really where my passion lies today.
1: Well, I'm coming from academia and and being the writing a linguistics journey to being the CMO of a leading B2B SaaS company. You are used to transformation. So let's get right into it. So the growth of the B2B SaaS and cloud industry is incredible over the last 10 years. From 5,000 companies all over 10 years ago to over 40,000 B2B SaaS and cloud companies in 2021. And with that, has come a lot of noise in the market. You know, with all this noise, especially around sales tech, and I think Gartner calls it the sales tech mayhem, right? It's hard sometimes to really stand out. So my first question to you is, was the rebranding of DNA to Revenue.io more about the external factors, or was it based upon the evolution of your own solution and more of a platform approach?
2: You know, it was a blend. Really, I think like you, we saw a few years ago, tech convergence coming. I think that the line between sales tech, MarTech, and a lot of other solution categories are, are really blending. And so a couple of years ago, we started taking our platform from really what was predominantly a go-to-market sales engagement platform to something much broader. And yet we still have this name, Ring DNA that made everybody think of a sales dialer. So for us, we're, we're pleased that it seems like the market has kind of caught up to where we wanted to be, which is really addressing, you know, really a revenue leader, the emergence of a revenue leader. And then simultaneously, the old name just didn't fit anymore. Revenue.io seems like it's, it's where the market is. It's where we are as a platform company.
0: So William, is this type of rebranding model, is this something that can be done on your own? Did you need to go find a branding partner in all this? How did you guys execute on that approach?
2: You know, we are really lucky that we've got almost like an agency in-house. We've got a phenomenal group of writers and product marketers, and we've got a great design team. So for us, we chose to do it in-house. One, because we felt like we had the talent. But I think the other thing is that there aren't that many agencies out there that really understand, I think, revenue operations as a category or the market. So it seemed like it would have taken, you know, two or three times as long and been a lot harder to try to, you know, really do the education necessary to make it fair for an agency to, to be able to succeed.
1: One of the things you mentioned was there's a real blending of Martech and sales tech. It's really revenue tech today. And it's interesting, even with my company, RevOps Squared, which founded in 2008, over the last 12 to 24 months, I've seen an amazing momentum shift around revenue operations as a process, an organization, then revenue intelligence as a new concept, and -hmm. the platforms to really fuel that transformation from sales or marketing to revenue. So my first question to you, William, about that is, did you... From your founding in 2012 to Ring DNA, now Revenue IO, always have the view of revenue technology, or did the market move with you, or did you move with the market?
2: You know, I felt like the market actually caught up to what we were really wanting to do. Not many people know this, but our first product was actually not dialer, which is what we became known for, it was actually inbound call tracking. For marketers. And it's something that some percentage of our customers use as an add on. And, you know, those marketing leaders are, are really happy with it. But we always really saw this idea that through software and through a lot of other alignment, revenue teams were collectively just going to become more and more aligned over time. And so, you know, we really tried to design a platform that would do that, even though there were times in our history where, you know, we put greater emphasis on maybe one thing or another thing. But I mean, what's your view? Do you feel like it's been kind of a, a gradual march to this moment? Or do you feel like, you know, there were just really jarring moments that kind of shook things up and accelerated the whole movement?
1: It's interesting. And In my first enterprise software company before SaaS, I wanted to have an outbound lead generation organization that did all the outbound calling and emailing. And we called it telemarketing. And then within about three to four years, we started calling it business development and we then morphed to sales development. But I will tell you, William, when we were able to equip our sales development organizations with a sales engagement platform, which automated the outbound process on a multi-channel approach, which included dialing, email, and we all know about email cadences, and now quite frankly, even social interaction, and that really started happening, what, about five, six years ago? When that shift happened, the shift I saw, William, was the larger percentage of pipeline was being developed by sales development outbound activities than the traditional marketing activities, which drove inbound leads. So to me, that was the
0: transformational period, was the
1: evolution of maturity of sales development. Mark, what do you think?
0: I think you described and and went deeply into where it's been. I think what's really interesting is where it's going. And it's, uh, it's in the middle, in my mind, of a very significant shift again. And kind of the old data, the old just what has worked and what hasn't worked has all kind of been put on end. Of course, with the pandemic, that's changed a lot. But I think it was systemic, apart from the pandemic, as well. And as we get back into normal lives and uh, normal economic activity, we're going to see that. So it kind of ties me to a question that I- I'd like to see and learn a little more about Williams' perspective on, and that is, you—you you had the ultimate point solution, right, with Ring DNA, but you now have this incredible platform as a company. So how do you How do you figure out and and try to forecast what's going to happen next with the market so that you have products that could really support your clients?
2: Well, for one thing, you know it's folks like you. It's people like you who do a lot of market research and you know tell us what's next. Also, you know we actually spend quite a bit of time with analysts because and our customers, by the way, So I think, you know, we do a couple of things. One is, you know, we do spend quite a bit of time getting product roadmap feedback from customers, asking them really what their primary challenges are, you know, making sure it's in line and and thinking and trying to ask them questions such as where do you want to be? What do you anticipate needing two years from now, three years from now? And we do the same thing with analysts. So I think part of it is just, you know, keeping your ear to the ground, but then also seeing, okay, you know, you can't boil the ocean. You can't do everything. So, you know, where do we really fit in there? And what, what should we really focus on and emphasize it? Because I know RevOps is a really big subject. You know, it can impact a lot of people, but I think everybody has lanes within that, right? And it's trying to figure out where you really shine.
1: Well, let me ask about that, William, because with Revenue IO, you're focused on, of course, helping the efficiency of growing pipeline and growing revenue. Do you believe that your primary economic and executive buyer is on the marketing side of the house, on the sales side of the house, or no, we got to stop thinking like that. It's the revenue leaders that are economic buyers.
2: It's interesting. I think it's the revenue leaders. Those are, I think, the present and future buyers. Number two is absolutely the sales leaders, I think. But you know, ultimately, the reason I think that is because, you know, th- there, there are many reasons, as you know, why, why companies should embrace a RevOps model, but I think ultimately it's for the customers, right? You know, why are we doing this at the end of the day? It's because, you know, B2B buyers are pretty frustrated. There is some some data out there that should scare sales teams about like millennials wanting a, a seller-free experience completely, right? And And it's not just that group. So at a really high level, what we can really do is enable you know, these revenue leaders and, and currently sales leaders with you know, the data and the insights and especially the real-time guidance that they need to give these customers you know, what they really expect and, and meet those expectations because customer expectations are only getting higher. They only want things to be more personalized and they can't really do that unless they've got you know, the real-time insights to, to deliver that experience.
1: I'm going to move back to the rebranding because that was really the theme of today's show, William.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I, because I know you I've worked with revenue.io on research. I know that you're very revenue centric as a CMO, that pipeline and revenue is the ultimate measurement. So let's talk about the measurement of rebranding because rebranding, even with the great internal team is not free and right. there's some risk that goes with rebranding. So when you and the CEO and CFO are talking about investing and in rebranding and all the work, I can't even imagine how much work it is. Did you also talk about how we're going to measure if this really is a positive for us over the near and long term?
2: Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. And I think like many B2B CMOs, you'll never hear me utter the word brand in a board meeting just because you know B2B investors just are not wired that way right? And so that's not my, my typical orientation. But in this case, I think, you know, we had to go there. And I think our, you know, our board was very supportive that it really does make strategic sense, right? But you asked about the, the measurements. I think once we got to the point where we really knew, okay, this is going to be worth it. This is what we're doing. We did think, yeah, how will we measure this? And so we've got about 20 to 25 data points, which I know sounds like too many, but of things that we are measuring. So for example, some of the things are things like that are normally like they're softer than the metrics that I usually do, but we are looking at things like social media impressions, downloads of materials, video views, rebrand video views, things like that. Because the one thing that you, we know we need to do in B2B is make sure our target accounts know who we are. We're running pretty disciplined ABM model. And if your target accounts don't know who you are and what you stand for and what you know your positioning is then you know you, your sales team isn't going to have a high win rate so a lot of the things that i normally shun like awareness metrics are things that that we actually did put targets around so we're looking at awareness metrics and pr share a voice social media impressions we're also looking at open rates to specific cohorts in emails for example to our target customer accounts and our existing customers and then the last thing and then I'll shut up is we're actually using our platform to get the messaging in front of our existing customers because as i think everybody can agree on the customers that you have are your most valuable ones and you want to make sure that they feel comfortable and are really excited about the things you're doing so those are a few of them does that make sense
0: yeah so william so you mentioned 20 to 25 data points and maybe that's too much and my first reaction is maybe 5 years ago it was too much it's not too much today because yes the, as as humans do we want to be looking at dashboards of 5 to 7 data points because that's about as much as we can consume in any given time. But with the power of AI, the power of products like yours, you know, you could take fifty, seventy-five, eighty-five, you know, data points and put it together and come up with executable decisions after that so you know if you can elaborate a little more on you know kind of even how your your product and and how you even could leverage your own products internally to take in some of that data to take in some of that information and let artificial intelligence do its thing
2: yeah well that's a good point now on this one you know our product does or our platform does so much in terms of measuring and, and, and providing insights for teams, but it's definitely not oriented to measure a rebrand for sure. sure. So from that, there's a bit of separation, but yeah, we can certainly do all kinds of other things. Though for this, we're, we're definitely using things like I'll, I'll give one vendor a shout out here, the shield app on LinkedIn, because, you know, with, yeah, that's just probably one of the best things we've found so far in terms of really measuring our audience and the engagement with it on, on that channel.
1: By the way, I love the fact that you said Shield because if you want to know how LinkedIn members are engaging with your content, liking it, views, comments, it's a great tool. Totally agree. I'm gonna double-click on one other thing, and that is kind of the measurement mm-hmm. and the transition process. So people since 2012, new ring DNA. When you first introduce your brand, do you still say formally ring DNA? do you try to bridge the connection from i know ring dna to revenue.io or do you say no forget the past we are just going to build the brand natively on revenue.io
2: yeah so on this one we are, we are using actually a pretty well worn and and time tested strategy here so right now it's introducing ourselves as revenue.io in context for example when people come to the website for a long time probably for at least 3 months you're going to see a banner at the top that says, you know, RingDNA is now revenue.io. So same as our email signatures. If you were to search the RingDNA brand in Google, you're going to see RingDNA is now revenue.io. So we'll run that for three to six months. Next step is actually identifying ourselves as revenue.io for a matter of probably nine to 12 months. And at that point, depending on how those share of voice and other measurements are looking We'll probably drop .io and just start referring to ourselves as revenue, as many have done before us.
1: Wow. So you'll just refer to yourselves as revenue, not even revenue.io. I love that. that.
2: That, That's the goal. And, you know, if you remember, for those of us who are, you know, we're, we're around back in the day. At the time, Salesforce was a funky name. That was a really weird name. It was really jarring. It took years for the rest of us to kind of catch up and stop, like, you know, having like a fit every time we heard that term. So they went by salesforce.com for a long time until they really owned that term. And so it could take us longer than a year. We'll see how comfortable we feel in it. But, you know, that's where we're
0: headed. I like that mindset though, I think. And the Salesforce example is a perfect one because you're exactly right. And I've had lots of experience working with Salesforce as a, a partner company. And that was a big thing for years. They, there was always the, do you capitalize Salesforce? Do you not capitalize it? Mm-hmm. And I've watched that whole evolution. And now it's capitalized again, even without the dot-com because it, it is the brand. It is the name. So it's interesting to watch that. So there's this other very small company you may not have heard of called Facebook that just recently went through <laughs> a branding, well, formerly known as, I kind of like Prince, I guess, formerly known as Facebook. What do you think of that rebrand and do you think it was a good idea and do you think it was well executed? Oh
2: man, that's a really gnarly one. It's a great question. I'm I'm still wrestling with it a little bit. I think it's a little bit for me like the Alphabet rebrand, where it seems like it's an attempt for investors and other folks to be able to make sense of everything underneath it because i do think that a lot of people when they invest in the facebook stock there's a lot of investors that still don't know that they own instagram that don't know that they own oculus you know and and other brands like that so i think in a way it's smart for the investment community i'm not sure if it's going to mean much for everybody else but what do you think I'm, i'm really curious
0: yeah, I mean, I think so. I have a traditional kind of connection to brands. So I struggle with every one of those changes. Because to your point, you know, it, it does do a lot of value to help investors understand what they're investing in. But it doesn't do a lot of value to me to introduce a new name. And so, you know, I guess in some ways, Facebook's free brand's a little more powerful than Alphabet, because I never really understood that one. You know, I get it. Alphabet, they do everything, all the letters of an alphabet. But, you know, so I I would rather see companies invest in the power of their name and invest like you're thinking of in owning revenue and making that something that everyone, when they hear revenue, knows that it's your company. I, I like that better than the uh, changing a name just for the sake of it, changing it. Now, another clarifying point, your reason for changing the name is much more powerful in my mind because it shows that you're not a one-trick pony. It really makes it clear what you're focused on. I don't think, and again, I gravitate back towards Google and Alphabet. I don't think they achieved any of that by changing their name. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the
1: Facebook thing and I don't want to spend much more of this podcast on Facebook. But maybe it's because um, we're in the industry. But when I think about all the talk I've heard about Metaverse over the last year or so, the Oculus acquisition, my question is, is this not just trying to eliminate some of the negativity with the Facebook brand today that we're seeing out there, but really signaling where they're going over the next five to 10 years and that they're going to be a leader in this new virtual world of the Metaverse? So. I actually find it really intriguing, but let's double click back to Revenue.io. Is that, that okay?
2: That sounds good, but that's a very good point. I will say I agree with that, and and I think it is a good signal for where they're going to go. But it'll it'll be really interesting to see, you know, how that's embraced.
1: Well, let's hope that rebranding to Revenue comes with a lot of revenue growth, right, William?
2: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
1: so, so there's a lot of people out there today. It's like, well. We have evolved our positioning over the last few years. We have evolved our product from a point solution to a platform with five, six different solutions within that platform. So another question I have to you is if you're thinking about rebranding the company, does it have to come with a repositioning of the company or is their brand just highlighting the position you already had?
2: yeah you know for us the answer is yes it's worth it to absolutely do all the repositioning and you know for us here's why i think people know that you know we can still help you of course with your sales engagement we still help you with your sales productivity all that but what we're really are doing for various roles is emphasizing i think where the market is going and it's going toward i I think the definitions of many things that we've known for the last decade or so like sales enablement for example is going to mean something really different and already means something really different from our customers. So sales enablement, it's still, you still need like an on-demand of course, repository of collateral and, and whatnot, right. For your sellers. But for us, it's more about, you know, making sure that those sellers are being surfaced, you know, real-time insights that are going to help them in the moment, even during conversations. Right. And that the platform is really saying, Hey, it sounds like, you know, the person you're talking to just mentioned your big competitor. Here's some talking points that you might want to have at your disposal. So really for us repositioning toward that idea of empowering sales teams with real-time guidance, even though it's not everything that we do, it really is like the, probably the most exciting thing that we're doing that we're seeing the most adoption with. And really that's only possible if you're collecting data across all your revenue teams and, and you're really centralized.
0: So William, you have been in the enviable position of being a CMO who has just executed on a rebranding. And there are are only so many that uh, CMOs that get to go through that at this type of a level. As Ray mentioned, it's it's a lot of hard work, a lot of moving Mm -hmm. parts. So I'd like to learn more about just how it felt leading that effort, but also what insights, like what did you learn through this process?
2: It's a great question. I I think for us, one of the things that, that we really were, learned is the ports of being able to trust your company and all the members in it. We took a huge leap of faith. So I will say, you know, I think with most companies, there's a long process. So I've worked on the rebrand for almost a year. I would say most of the company worked on the rebrand for about four months. And, you know, the year is spent talking with people you trust, circulating ideas inside and outside of the company, trying to, you know, do a little bit of testing and make sure that, you know, the thing that you're thinking of doing, that will be a ton of effort is really worth it. But once you're at that decision where you can go to your entire company and make a really good case, that's the part that I think we did really right. Because a lot of companies don't do that. I've talked to so many people who were at a company that they literally did not know their positioning was changing their name was changing until the night before. And to me, that's, that's really hard, but I understand why people do it because if the word gets out that you're doing this, like it, it steals all your thunder. So that's why a lot of people keep it really close to the vest or they hire an outside agency and they literally don't let anybody know except for maybe the board of investors and the executive team. But for us, it was just really important to read people in. So we read everybody in the company in, kind of swore them to a vow of silence but we also made them feel included in the project. We had, I think one thing things that we did right was it was a continuous loop of feedback as we were making decisions on some of the items throughout. So for me, trust and not surprising everybody internally was a really big thing.
1: William, how far in advance did you let the employees know who weren't working on it? Was it four months? Was it eight months?
2: It was four months. Yeah, it was four months. And, you know, there were some things that that we tried to keep close to the vest, you know, up to the last moment. Like, for example, we didn't release uh, backgrounds like this or, you know, deliver T-shirts until, you know, almost the last moment. But, yeah, it was really important because there's a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt that can come up in in all sectors of your business. You know, engineering is thinking like, well, what does this mean for us? What do do we need to change? Uh, You know, and you can't underestimate that FUD.
1: Mark, I got to follow up with another question. It's, it's it's burning in my mind. And that is content marketing and content marketing assets have become so important over the last few years. Mm-hmm. William, I have to ask a question. You probably did an inventory of every marketing asset that you had, mm-hmm. which were probably in the hundreds. Did it give you a chance to really prune some of those that just weren't getting engagement or you thought were just not very good today versus where they were two or three years ago? And what percentage of content marketing assets did you delete or eliminate?
2: Yeah, it's a really good call. I would estimate that we pruned about 25 to 35% of all of our assets. And then I think probably another 50% of that that remain were areas where we did a significant change in messaging, in positioning, and, and so on and so forth.
1: I think that's something that most marketers miss when they don't go through a rebranding. And by the way, go ask your salespeople, what do you think of this content? And they'll have a perspective, right? That we don't do that pruning proactively. So now that you've done it with the rebrand, do you think this will be a more regular process at revenue.io where you evaluate assets on a annual or even more often basis?
2: Yeah. And I think for us, you know, for better or for worse, we review, we tend to review them pretty regularly. You know, I I would say we have pretty close feedback loops with our, especially our sales team and increasingly our customer success team. And so it's something where I'd say there's always some area of kind of looking in the mirror and, and asking ourselves whether you know using this particular piece makes any sense anymore or how it needs to be positioned but I don't know what, what's your thought do you feel like there's a frequency that's too much or or too little for that
1: boy thank you for throwing that back and since I don't have a good answer yet Mark what do you think <laughs>
0: Yes, yeah, So, I mean, my my opinion would be, you know, I, I think there is, you have to figure out what your cadence is. And once you figure that out, I, I think it's good to make sure you look at these assets and, and make sure they are where they need to be and where you want them to be moving forward.
1: I have a little bit different perspective, I guess, William. I think that when we do the quarterly business reviews, right, and uh-huh. often they're viewed as that's a sell thing. Mm -hmm. But I would actually try to look at what marketing assets were getting the most engagement and that the sales force actually said, these are really valuable and these not so much. And we may not be able to update all of them on a quarterly basis. But if you go through that on a quarterly basis, at least once a year, you have pretty fresh content. So my recommendation is it's methodical. And on a quarterly business review, we look at how our content's being used, how it's engaging to target buyer. And let that drive the decisions. But unfortunately, William, we are coming up to the end of this episode. So the last question I have for you, and Mark kind of went there a little bit, having just went through this, if there was like a couple of the biggest lessons that you learned that you would say, anybody considering this, make sure you do this or don't do that. What are those one to two that just rise to the top?
2: Yeah, I think one is going back to where you started, which is you know, have some target metrics in mind, right? Even it's as if it's as simple as, you know, metrics that give you a really good idea that all of your existing customers and target customers understand and have at least, you know, seen the new brand. So I think one is is just making sure you know what your targets are heading into a rebrand. I think number two is make it meaningful, right? really make it meaningful. Just because your CEO is tired of the logo or tired of the name, that's not good enough. You have to, I'd say for all this to be worth it, there has to be market opportunity that that is really there that you need to address just like you would before doing a startup.
0: Mark, anything else from you, my friend? Uh, No, I think that was well described. And I think that meaningful statement is key. Like this isn't something you should consider lightly. It should be done in the same way that starting a new company or investing in a company with the same type of due diligence. And I know you did that, William, with with your group. And I think it's going to pay you great dividends because of all that hard work you did up front.
1: I'm a big swag monster, so I'm happy to promote revenue.io with that new coffee mug or whatever you have. But seriously, I cannot believe you actually got the revenue.io URL. So congratulations on that. I think it's so relevant to what your company does and how it impacts your customers, which is accelerating revenue growth across the entire lifecycle. So congratulations. Thank you for sharing your journey. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying our guests and the topics we cover, like how to rebrand your B2B cloud company, it would mean the world to us if you'd go ahead and subscribe to Selling the Cloud on your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and give us a rating and recommendations on how we can make the show even better. William, thank you so much for being our guest today.
2: Thank you so much. A real pleasure. And, you know, look forward to engaging again in the future.